You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. I have such fond memories of the three different houses that I grew up in as a kid. I can remember climbing over the back fence at my house on Russet Valley and playing for endless hours uh, in the field uh, that was behind us. Uh, I remember our dad uh, mowing uh, a race course uh, into our backyard so that my brother and my sister and I could ride our bikes through it. Uh, I remember uh, our house on Deer Creek. I remember uh, shooting and breaking out the window of that house with my BB gun, getting in just a little bit of trouble for that. Uh, I can remember uh, my two youngest brothers uh, being born and being brought home uh, into that house. Uh, I remember uh, our house on Cedar Mound Pass. I remember just a countless number of fajita parties uh, that we had in the backyard. I remember uh, all the fun that we had playing ping pong on the back patio. Uh, I remember the family meals around the dinner table. I remember uh, playing pickup basketball uh, day after day after day in the driveway. Uh, and my parents, they, they still live uh, in, in that latest house, the house that I grew up in in high school. And I love that house, right? Because it's, it's more than a house to me, right? It, it's a home. Now, our homes have, have a powerful and lasting impact on us, right? Home is a place of, of welcome and safety. It's a place of honesty and, and celebration, right? The idea of home draws out deep longings uh, that we all have, longings for for security and safety, longings for uh, acceptance and belonging. We all want, we all need a place to call home. And that's exactly what our passage uh, is about this evening. Uh, Here in 2 Samuel 7, uh, God promises David a home. He promises that he's going to build David a home that will last forever. It is a glorious promise. And as we're going to see, it's a promise that extends far beyond uh, David. Uh, This passage that we're in this evening is known as the Davidic Covenant. And it truly is one of the most important stories uh, in in this David narrative that we are in this summer. Uh, It may not be as familiar uh, or as famous uh, to you as the story of David and Goliath, uh, but this is probably the most important story uh, in 1 and 2 Samuel. In fact, I want you to listen to the two main commentators uh, that I read on this passage this week and what they had to say uh, about the significance uh, of the chapter that we are in this evening. Uh, One of them wrote that 2 Samuel 7 uh, is the most crucial theological statement in the whole Old Testament. And the other one said that there are few passages in the entire Bible that are more important or more exciting in 2 Samuel 7. And so my goal today is to just let God's word pull us, to draw us in to this excitement. Uh, This chapter that we're going to look at, uh, 2 Samuel 7, it breaks uh, nicely down into these clear uh, three sections. And so we're just going to walk together through these three sections. Uh, The first one we see in verses 1 through 3, it shows us David's plans that's verses 1 through 3. Verses 4 through 17, we see God's promises. And then finally, in verses 18 through 29, we see David's praise. Right? So David's plans, 
God's promises, and then David's praise. And so let's, let's start by looking, uh, I'll sort of rehash for us verses one through three, which you just heard read for us. It's, it's about David's plans, the plans that he has for God. Uh, just a quick recap to catch you up with where we're at in the life of David. Uh, as we saw uh, just a few weeks ago, Second Samuel uh, begins with the death of King Saul. And after Saul dies, David is finally installed as king, as the king of Israel. The nation of Israel, uh, which had been in really just a ton of turmoil up until this point, begins to experience great uh, prosperity uh, under King David's reign. Uh, Israel had been a divided kingdom um, up until this point, but David unites the kingdom and he brings great strength to Israel. Israel was in constant uh, attack from people like the Philistines. But David defeats all of their enemies and brings great rest and peace to the nation. David is at the top of his game. He is at the height of success. And that's uh, how 2 Samuel 7 begins. Everything is going well for David. Everything is going well for the nation of Israel. As you heard Uh, the passage just read as you heard in those first few verses the passage starts with King David and he's he's living in this house of cedar right which just means that he's living in the nicest house that he could build right and so David is he's lounging around in this luxurious palace that he has he's got some hot tubs outside he's got some flat screens on the walls right everything's real nice and then one day he he looks out the window and he, he sees the Ark of the Covenant which you'll remember is the symbolic presence of God. The ark was the most important religious object in the history of Israel. And so David looks out the window and he sees the ark. He sees it housed inside just a common tent. In this contrast of his house and the house of God, it just it doesn't sit well with him. And so David decides that he is going to build a deserving house for God. This seems reasonable, right? It seems like a a genuine desire from David. The passage doesn't tell us what, if anything, was wrong with David's motives. So either way, David tells this plan to Nathan, who essentially is David's pastor. And like any good pastor would respond if someone wanted to fund a building campaign, right? Nathan's like, yeah, Yeah, this sounds great. Sounds like a great plan, David. Don't let me stop you. Go and do all that is in your heart. Now, it's worth pausing here just for a minute to point out something that we have seen multiple times, multiple times in our study of the life of David this summer. An important lesson that we should be getting from 1 and 2 Samuel is this. Even the best laid plans are doomed to fail if God isn't behind them. Even the best laid plans are doomed to fail if God isn't behind them. We can't rely on human wisdom. We can't rely on good desires. We can't rely on pure motives. Those, Those are all good things that God uses to help guide us in our lives, but they can't be relied on completely. In discerning God's will, We have to bring our plans to God. And so while uh, David and Nathan's plan seems to be genuine for all we know, uh, we're going to see 
uh, in this next section that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't God's plan. Right? God wasn't behind it. God had another plan, and it was much bigger. It was much greater than what David had in mind. And so let's move uh, to the second section uh, of this chapter, which focuses on God's promises to David. And this, this really is the, uh, the meat of our passage. And so we're going to spend a little bit more time here looking at God's promises. Uh, so turn, uh, turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel 7, if you haven't already. We're going to start in verse 4. If you don't have a Bible, it's uh, on page 261 of the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. It'll just be helpful for you to follow along uh, in our passage today. So, uh, David comes up with this plan to build God a house. He tells it to Nathan. uh, And then we pick up in verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So God says to David, he's saying, look, look, look I don't want to be in a temple. I didn't ask for a temple. I've been in a tent uh, since long before you, David. I've been in a tent since the days of the Exodus as a way to dwell, as a way to be with my people. And what we see in God's response here, we see God giving us a glimpse of the very nature of God. God is saying, the heart of who I am is to be with my people. I want to be where they are. I am a God, David, who is near to my people. Uh, One of the highlights of God's uh, ministry to his people has always been, it's always been his nearness. Uh, Whether it was uh, in a burning bush or in a a pillar of fire or whether it was in a tent or whether it was a tabernacle. And so as God is sort of providing a little gentle rebuke, a little gentle correction here to David, he's also making an important promise. He's saying, what has always been foundational to my relationship with my people, what has always been true is going to continue. I am a God who is going to be near. I am not some distant God. Where my people are, that's where I am. What my people experience, I experience with them. When my people suffer, I suffer with them. I I am Emmanuel, God with you. I will be near to my people. Uh, My wife and I have three young kids, and um, let me just tell you, they hurt themselves all the time, right? If you're a parent with young kids, you know this. All the time, every day, multiple times a day. They run into each other, They slam the car door on their fingers. They drop a book or a toy on their toes. They walk their face straight into the kitchen table. And all of that was just like yesterday afternoon. Our children hurt themselves all the time. And each and every time they do, the the, the hot mess of tears starts coming out. And and then what do they do? They run to mommy. They run to daddy. and, And we hold them 
we kiss them, we comfort them, and very quickly, like, like almost instantly, they're better, right? They're, they're right back at it playing. Right? Just, being, just being with them is healing. Right? What my kids need is for me to be, to be near them. The Bible says that for God's people, the Bible says that you are in Christ. And what that means is that Jesus Christ represents you. It means that you get his record of righteousness. You are in Christ. But did you also know that the Bible says that Christ is in you? At Colossians chapter 1, it, it talks about the nearness of God, and it, re, it refers to the nearness of God as a mystery. And then it says that this mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God promises David, and he promises us, he promises you, that he is a God who is going to be near. He, he delights to be near us. Have you remembered? Have you remembered this good news lately? Do you sense the nearness of the Lord? If it feels like your family is just hanging on by a thread, I want you to know God is not far off. He's not far off. He's not far off as you struggle with a disease that is slowly killing someone you love, He's not distant. Uh, infertility, uh, another lost job, another broken relationship, another fall into sin's temptation. We all have times in our lives when we feel abandoned. But God promises that he is, he's with you. He, he's near. What an amazing blessing. Uh, but not only that, uh, God promises also to never leave. Uh, he promises that He's going to be near us, and he also promises to never leave. Uh, Look at how he says this uh, in verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This chapter began with David wanting to build God a house. But here we see God tell David, no, no, no. That's not the way this works, David. And then God proceeds to review his past graces in David's life. He says, hey, David, do you remember when I went and got you out of the fields? When I chose you when you were just a shepherd? Do you remember when you went into battle? You fought and you won all those victories. Do you remember the promise of land that I gave long, long ago to Abraham? And and now look where you're at. You're in that promised land. I I am the one, David, who builds the house. God is saying the story of your life 
David, is not that you have done great things for God. The story of your life is that you are one for whom God has done great things. That God wants David to see and he wants all of us to see that our role as Christians, our role is, it, it's not to do great things for God so that people will take notice of us. Right? Our primary role is not one uh, of role models. It, it's more like that uh, of a trophy. You know a trophy? Sort of a, a work of art that demonstrates God's saving power. You see, no one, no one looks at and notices a trophy for having done something great, right? No. They, they recognize that the trophy represents, it points to someone who is great. And God says, right, you aren't going to build me a house, David. I am going to build you a house. But there's, this, uh, there's sort of a play on the word house here. Uh, in this passage. Uh, when God says that he's going to build David a house, he, he has a little bit different uh, house, uh, different, different kind of a house in mind. And so uh, look back at verse 12 to see what kind of a house God is talking about here. And so uh, God declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom, David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne, David, shall be established forever. David wants to build God a literal house, a temple. But the kind of house that God wants to build David is a dynasty. God is saying, I'm going to do for you, David, far more than you could ever ask or think. Uh, and hopefully you noticed, uh, th- there's this one word that's repeated three times uh, just in those few verses I, I read. Right? It's, it's the word forever. Right? This, this house, this dynasty that God is going to build David is going to last forever. Uh, now when we typically use the word forever, uh, we use it with a sense of hyperbole, don't we? As in, uh, our food at this restaurant is taking forever. Right? We're never going to eat this car ride is taking forever. When are we going to get there? Right? This, this sermon is lasting forever. When is it going to be over? But look, I, w- I want you to know that when God uses the word forever, he is being quite literal. When God says to David that these promises will last forever, he is saying that they cannot fail. He, he's saying that they are indefectible, nothing can stop them from coming true. Nothing. Commentator Ralph Davis points to three dimensions, three three ways in which God says that this covenant, these promises with David will last forever. First in verse 12, God says that death will not annul it, right? Death will not destroy, it will not annul these promises that he's making to David. 
right? Look at that. Verse 12, God says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring. Like David, you're going to die one day. But even when you die, even when your body is buried in a grave, the promise still continues. Right? Death will not annul it. But secondly, sin can't destroy it. Uh, sin, as we have seen from our time uh, this summer, is what caused Saul uh, to lose the throne. Uh, but look at what God says in verses 14 and 15. And he says, I will be to him, and he's speaking of, of David's son Solomon here, he says, I will be to him a father. And when he commits iniquity, when, when he sins, I will discipline him, verse 15, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. Right? Sin can't destroy it. Right? Death will not annul the covenant, will not annul the promises. Sin can't destroy it. And then third, time will not exhaust it. God says in verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Forever. Do you know what that means? Right? There's no expiration date. Time will not exhaust it. Nothing can get in the way of these promises coming true. Not death, not sin, not even time. Can you imagine the difference that these promises must have made in David's just day-to-day life? Imagine the strength that that must have given him. I mean, David was a great man. He, he, he was a man after God's own heart. But look, he was, he was still just a man. Right? He, he still struggled to trust in God. He still struggled to walk in faith in, in his present circumstances, just like you and I. And, and so hearing from God here, about what God was going to do for David, what God was going to do for David's future. And what comfort, what, what peace, what, what security that must have given him. Security in life, uh, I think, is one of the deepest longings of the human soul. Our need for security brings out some of, uh, some of our greatest fears in life. Fears like, will I have enough money? Is my health going to hold up? Will my spouse love me tomorrow? Will they love me five years from now? Is my, is my future secure? And, and this need that we have for security can easily get out of control. It, it can become idolatrous very quickly. But I want to say this. Our need for security is also deeply wired within us. Now, on Maslow's hierarchy of needs... Security is the second most fundamental need that we have. Second. It's second only to our physical needs, like like sleeping and eating. So when a person lacks a sense of security, it's debilitating. It's disorienting. But on the flip side, when you feel secure, when you feel safe, it brings great peace into your life. And it actually changes not only your emotions, it begins to change your actions as well. It changes not only how you feel, it changes what you do. I mean, think about it. If you were somehow given a superpower and you were able to know the future of the stock market, like Biff in Back to the Future 2, you guys remember that? 
right? That would have profound effects on your life, wouldn't it? Like, like you would immediately throw all of your money, all of your savings, all of your future into the stock market, wouldn't you? Of course you would. You wouldn't think twice about it. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be worried. You wouldn't lose any sleep. You, you would go all in. You would bank your life on it. You see, because when you're sure about something, when you have certainty about something, if you were to know what your future held, like, like beyond a shadow of a doubt, it would radically change your actions in the present. And that's the kind of promise God is making here. That's the kind of God, uh, promise God is making here. He's saying, David, your, your, your future is secure. It's certain. These promises that I'm making to you, they are forever promises. They cannot fail. You, you can bank your life on it, David. But that's true security. When David heard these promises, I, I think he must have just been in shock, right? He must have been in shock. He's, he's going, wait, what? Seriously? Like, my house? My kingdom is going to last forever? Seriously? Like this, this is amazing. This is amazing. This means that, that my son Solomon's going to be king and then his son's going to be king and his son and his son is going to be king and there's going to be this unbroken line forever. But if you read the Old Testament, uh, that's not what happened, is it? Pretty quickly, pretty quickly, David's kingdom, David's family line just exploded into a million pieces. Right, the Israelites went into captivity under the regime of, of the Persians, the Syrians, the Romans. Right, and the line of David just, just seems to sort of fizzle out. When you get to the end of the Old Testament, you're, you're kind of left wondering, man, what happened? What happened to these promises that God made with David? What happened to this covenant God made with David? Maybe this was more of a sort of conditional covenant that God just eventually just gave up on. How is it that God kept his promises to David? Well, I want you to flip over in your Bible uh, to Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to give you a moment because I really want you to see this. Pew Bibles, get this. It's page 1 of the New Testament, all right? Flip over in your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. So the Old Testament ends. Uh, David's kingdom, the nation of Israel, is, is in shambles. And then uh, when the Old Testament ends, there, there's actually about 400 years of silence from God until we get to the New Testament. 400 years of silence. But Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the first page of the New Testament, we read this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ And what's the next line? The son of David. The son of David. Do you get it? God's promises are indefectible. They cannot fail. And the reason that we can be sure of this, the reason that we can be sure that our future is secure is because of these words. Jesus Christ, the son of David. In Luke 1, Luke's gospel account, an angel comes to 
uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And, and the angel says this about Jesus. It says, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign forever and ever and of his kingdom there will be no end. You see, the promises that God made to David, they point through David's son, Solomon. They point through King Solomon to another king, Jesus. Jesus was the descendant of David whose kingdom would last forever. He was the descendant who would establish, he would build the true temple. Not not a building constructed by human hands like that of, of Solomon's temple, but a temple of his own body. Unlike Solomon, Jesus would not be disciplined with the stripes of men. Uh, instead, he would be crushed for our iniquity. He, it was by his stripes that we would be healed. The real son of David would be God's own son, and he would establish God's presence with his people forever. The promises, the covenant that God made to David to build a house, it comes true because God is saying, I'm going to build my own house, and I will become the very house that I have promised. In Jesus, God would be the fulfillment of his own promise. And because of 2 Samuel 7, we can be sure that when God gives himself to a people, he commits to them forever. Because Jesus is reigning on the throne of his father David, you can be sure that God will, will never leave you. He will never give up on you. He will never throw you aside and he will conquer, he will defeat all of your worst enemies. And look, if God's massive promises to David came true, If God is faithful across a thousand generations to an entire nation, how much more can we trust him with our own lives? So what are we to do with this? How do we respond to God's promises? I want to finish by looking at how David responded. In verses 18 through 29, we have this this really great prayer of gratitude uh, from uh, David, and we don't, we don't have time to read this whole prayer, but, but I want to look at just a few verses, and so look at verses 18 and 19, flip back to 2 Samuel 7. Let's see how, how David responded. Verses 18 and 19. Then David, King David, went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, who am I? O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Look down at verse 22. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. David had this plan to do something for God, and God says, nope, I don't, I don't think so. Instead, I'm going to do something for you, David, something far 
more than you could ask or think. And how does David respond? Like like a little child, he goes and and he just sits at the feet of his Lord. And he he worships. He, He responds with worshipful praise. If you read this this full prayer later on, and I encourage you to do that, you will see uh, that the beauty of this prayer is is that David simply recounts the promises that God has just given him. That's all he does. He doesn't say anything new. He just, he recounts the promises. That's it. Why does he do that? I think it's because this. David knows that just hearing something isn't enough to make you believe it. And you see, in recounting these promises, David is, he's turning them over in his heart. He's, he's clinging to these promises. He's, he's embracing them by faith. So much so that they, they get deep within him. They sink deep down. They root themselves deep into David's life until they overflow into joyful praise. And, and what is it that, that David says there in verse 19? He says that these promises, this instruction, isn't just for David. Right? It's for all of mankind. It's, it's for me and it's for you. Right? We respond to God's abundant promises by humbling ourselves, by recounting God's promises over and over until they sink deep within us and overflow into a heart of praise. And that's, that's what we do in the communion meal every single week. Right? The communion meal is a powerful representation of the promises that God has made to us in Christ. Every week, week after week, we bring with us our half-hearted efforts to please God. But God says, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. Right? The story of your life is that you are one for whom God has done great things. God says, You cannot build my house because I am building my house within you, a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In this meal, God is reminding us of the promises he has made to us. Promises to be near us, promises to never leave us. And as we partake together of Christ's body and blood, we are recounting these promises over and over in our hearts. And as we do, God is working them deeper and deeper in order to to change us, in order to transform us, and then to send us out to live lives of worshipful praise. It's the gospel. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.